This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. make a joke out of it but i'm sure it was a very serious dramatic situation when you're telling your i guess your commanding officer and by the time you're a sergeant you're pretty high up there and you're telling your commanding officer like no i'm not going was it hard was it dramatic to be like no i'm not going no because i knew what i said didn't matter until what i had to do because they paid me no attention i'm not going but ultimately they was trying to get me to go. And it was a meeting of the minds who was going to win. Of course I won. <laughs> I broke I mean, my wrist. You broke your wrist? Yeah. On purpose? Hell yeah, because you can't go. If you have a physical right. disability, Yeah. Right. they put you on a waiver. Right. And um, they was really trying to send me to make me an example. So... What I did, I uh, got all my people together and said, we're going to sit there. I said, the only way I can get out here is I had a physical ailment that keeps me from being deployed. Earthquake is one of the funniest comedians around. He's had an amazing career for 20 years. And like so many comics, he's had a wild life. His mom gave him up to his sister when he was a kid to raise him. And at 18, he went into the Air Force, which was cool for a while. But when the Gulf War came, he was like, no, mm -mm, I'm not fighting for that. And he broke his wrist to get himself out of it. Incredible story. We're getting into all of that. It's Earthquake on Torre Show. You've had a really interesting life, so I want to dig into it. Um, but first, I mean, y you have been doing comedy for a long time. At this point, you seem like a master of the form. Let's just start with what you love about comedy. The instant gratification. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, um, you know, right or wrong, if it's right or if it's wrong. If it's, uh, you know, if it's working or it's not. And it's um, it's the most individual, uh, pure, artistic form that we have right now. I mean, I look at rappers and say, "Man, I wish I could tell my first joke, and my consumer base would just pay me for it over and over." Like they get to <laughs> sing the same song. You know, you go to a concert. Like, you want to see Jay-Z, you listen to Jay-Z on the way to the concert, only for him to regurgitate the same song that you already paid for and right up there. As a comedian, you can't do that. You have to constantly 
you know, you can have a great bit, but after it play, they heard the joke. You can't tell that one no more. And they don't want to hear it no more. They don't like, oh, let me hear, uh, put your hair in your mama name, say it again. So, you know, but, you know, I like those odds. I like it. I like it. What does it take to be great at it? Oh, man. Um, I personally, in my humble opinion, it has to be um, to able to have the third eye. And what I mean by the third eye, to make the obvious obvious. You know, everybody see it. You ever see a comedian? God, God, God damn. That's right. God, that right. That's right. There. You know what I mean? Like, God, right. God, yeah. You right. know what I mean? You know, and that's when you great. So that's always when I'm writing um, in my head because I don't write jokes. But when I'm I'm formulating my um, my thought pattern, that's that's the that's the that is um, the obstacle and the degree of difficulty that I I must do before I you know put it on anything. That's the thing. You're right. That makes you go, oh yeah. When the comic points out that thing, it's like. You know, there's a twenty dollar bill right under your foot. Like, oh wow, I didn't even yeah. notice that. Yeah. Like, oh man, and it connects you to the comic, and yet he has or she has that bit of superiority because I noticed something that you didn't notice. But now that we both noticed it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's my man. He feels me. He understands me. Yeah, and think of the degree of difficulty that the artists have to do because I don't know you, and I have to get you. And 300, 400, 10,000, all of y'all to come to that same conclusion with this one sentence or this one joke. You know, that's the magic of it. I f- is, it, is, it is it easier or harder in like a smaller club or a big arena? Um, for me, um, the smaller club is, is better. I love it because the intimacy. And you can you can try different things. You don't want to try a lot of different things in an arena because if you lose them, it's hard to bring. You know, <laughs> I just see some people lose them and can't get them back. So this ain't the time to be gambling. You got to be knowing what you're talking to ten thousand. You got two hundred. You can you know you can you can bring them back in. But that's the difference. I do either. Or I like personally I like the smaller crowd because I love the intimacy of it but the larger crowd because of the income. I mean, you. I feel like when I'm in a big crowd, that sort of mob thing happens. And every if everybody else laughs and I don't, then I'm like, it's, it's me. I didn't get that joke. What's wrong with me? Right. And it, you know, when I go to like the comedy cellar or whatever, it's 50, 80 people, you know, I'll be like, nah, that wasn't funny. I don't care that them five people over there laughed. I, I didn't think that was funny. You know, right. I feel more empowered to be like, I don't know about you. And that's the thing with, and that's one thing when you have our people, they come in there with the degree. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, so that's a higher degree with our people. Come on now. I feel feel like there's two kind of comics, at least for, for black folks. There's, there's folks like, like, let's say Bernie Mac, where, you know, he could just say someone just say a word funny and you just laugh because he just oozes the funny. And then there's somebody like, let's say, Rock, who uh, has really funny thoughts and he will think his way into making you laugh. Do you do you agree with that dichotomy and which side do you think you are more on? 
Um, not to be arrogant, both. Yeah. I think um, um, Chris, intellectually, um, put it this way. You have comedians, that's how I put it. I put, you have comedians that's, with no disrespect, I call Chinese food. You ate, but two hours later, you're hungry. Then you Because they don't feed your mind. Don't feed your mind. It's, it's silly. It's, it, 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 it fulfills the, uh, the obligation. You know what I mean? Um, the job description of it. Saw a and lot then, of that on like Comic View. Yeah, Comic White View. White people do. do this. Black people do that. As opposed yeah. to somebody getting to a more deeper conversation about the differences between or the differences within the race where I'm like, yo, he just changed my mind. And I'm going to quote that the next time I have an argument with somebody. And that's what I call that. Then you get to the ones which I was, is that's when it, it's um, soul food and it's a full mm. course meal because mm. it mm. sticks to your ribs and you burp and you still taste it later. That's when I say you burp. And you're, mm, oh man, that's all that. Them ribs was gone. What was your life? Made me remember. Because it stays to your ribs and your soul on it. And that's the difference. Now, Bernie, culturally, just because the way he talked and his mannerisms and everything with it, but the substance of his comedy is just was just as intellectually as in my humble as a Chris on it. Chris his Chris is intellectual that because he didn't put how can I put Chris talks, he does his, he talks to his tell his comic is like you calling customer service trying to get an extension <laughs> um, for your electric. Hey, good evening. This is Chris Rock. You know, you know, I'm calling you today. I'm not gonna have this next. Tristy, buddy. I'm not gonna have the money for the electric bill. I'll see it. Can I get an extension? Bernie is not. Bernie is swag. I Man, listen, I ain't got the motherfucking money. But you don't do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I ain't used all this goddamn, goddamn electric anyway. We weren't even home for two weeks. You know. So it's same point. He just put the sauce on it. He put the sound in, and it is. But both of them intellectually made the same point. I mean, you know, when, when I think about Bernie, I think about, you know, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers and the, and the fearlessness that it takes to really rock a crowd. And even if the jokes aren't hitting, you still have that fearlessness. Do you have fearlessness? Of I do. And and you have to have it on here because there's no safety. There's no you wanna you out there on your own. You on your own, like a back again as a rapper. You know if things ain't going right. You know, listen to the music. Right. <laughs> Put the dancers out there. Put some girls. Let them dance. Bring another rapper up there. Let him rap. Or sing somebody else's song. Rap another song or somebody else's beat. Whatever you have to do to get them up. No. We have to be original, so the fearless, because, you know, any comedian that does not get on stage without the fear that you can get booed, because that's an occupational hazard. And then I don't feel whatever you did last night has nothing to do with tonight. I mean, I feel like in some ways you get a you get a bit, you're traveling around, you know this bit works. It worked the last three, four, five nights in a row. And there are times when it's like, 
it just didn't work tonight. And I told the thing that made everybody laugh. And tonight they just didn't laugh. And I was kind of out there exposed. Well, in my insecurity of who I am, that's why I don't, I don't write long bits. I don't have bits. So my quantity and quality is equal. Um, if I was to um, elongate my jokes to some of my peers, do, I could do eight hours, you know, but I always had the insecurity is if you go through all this and it don't hit in my, with my people, if the one that's coming right behind it don't hit, that's your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell when black people about to boo you because they move around in their seat. Yeah. They start looking around at other people trying to get a, a gauge of the room. That wasn't funny, was it? That wasn't <laughs> I didn't think that was funny then. Man, it's like a mob mentality. You didn't think that was So it, it empowers the other dudes. Man, that shit wasn't nothing. <laughs> then all of a sudden the mob come with you. But if you have quick jokes or you 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 have hard content, you can boom boom, and then for me, what it is. My cadence, I just go, go, go. It's like Aaron Pryor. I'm just going to keep on hitting you with so many Ooh. jokes like Aaron Pryor hits you with punches until the rant, till the fight is over. You, you, you took me back saying? with that name right there. I remember yeah. Aaron Pryor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. remember yeah. Aaron Pryor? You little guy, swing. hit you fast, yeah. hit you yeah. a lot of times. Yeah, hit you a lot of times, hit you powerful, just get keep on going until either they stop the fight all the 12 rounds are up. So, yeah, so you like short jokes because if you if one doesn't hit, you can leap to the next one. You you feel like if you get into a story and it's not working, you're kind of trapped. True, because you're taking them to a climax, and if it's at a climax and it doesn't fulfill, now it's down. And if you got long jokes, you got to try to build it back up again. You know what I mean? And you got to understand with my people, our people, we are... Uh, you know, attention span is very short. So if you got long jokes, man, you can lose them. But see, what I'm thinking is I'm a runaway train. Mm. So I'm on it. I'm going to run you over. I'm going to blow you down. I'm going to maul you. So if the first one gets you, then I'm hitting you with a second one, and I'm hitting you, I'm, I'm earning problem. I'm overwhelming you. So if, even if you miss the first one, and that, that didn't get you, you then caught back on and on the second one, and you're on the train. But if I sit here with this long, elongated joke and going on, it's easy for people to just jump off. Is it harder uh, to make black people laugh? Is it is it a harder audience to 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 work? Um, no, you just got to be relatable. Yeah. What what happens? One thing about comedy, if you if you, and I'm, I hope I mean people would notice this. If you see the great comics, once they make it to movies and TV. The reason why they stopped doing comedy because their constituents that, you know, our people don't share the same experiences that they, they're staying. So you can't sit here and stand on stage and talk about something that is not relatable to your clientele. Mm. You living in the 1% house on a private jet and your constituents spending their last hundred dollars on their credit card to come see you perform. You have to be relatable. Even in your voice, the, the quality of your voice, there's something relatable 
It's very black. It reminds me of, you know, my uncle at the cookout or what have you. And just right there, I start to know as black audience, like, yeah, he's one of us. Yeah. Because um, I stay, and this is <laughs> this is funny, I never told nobody this. I always stay where if this shit don't work out no more, I'm already good. <laughs> you know, so if it ever falls, man, I am. I, I, I used to always tell my, my kids, man, your father's always just going to stay at the kitchen table level. He's never going to be up in the cabin. He say, what is it? Because if I fall, I'm still that close to the floor where the rest of my people at. So <laughs> I think I fall to fall. I can see the floor. So I know what's going on down the floor. So I stay relatable and you know, the nuances that comes along with it. But despite, you know, God, thank you. The blessing he just gave me with this financial situation I have, I never, ever go to that atmosphere with it. You you mean how you look at and take care of your money, or you mean, like, your humility? My humility. You don't My look humility. at yourself as a star? No, I'm not special. What I do is special. And I tell all my friends, you ain't special. The only person that was special is Jesus. And if well, I can never understand how you even allow yourself to fall into that trap of feeling you were special. Because if you were special, you wouldn't have to prove who you are. You had to prove you was this. You had to prove that you was a great comic. Only person that didn't have to prove who they were just on birth was Jesus. People came, just heard his birth came. Ain't nobody come when your mother was in the maternity ward and said, a great comedian is about to come out here, he's going to change the world and everything, the three kings and everything, all other comedians are right there around your mama. He's about to come out right now. You didn't get that. You had to get on there, prove your five minutes, six minutes. People told you wasn't there. So, I mean, where do you get this attitude to be, believe that you're special? Now, what you do is special. But who you are is not special. Who you are is not special. That's who you are when you get off stage. But when you get on stage, you have a certain mindset, just like Jordan or Aaron Pryor has a certain mindset when they step on the court or in the ring or what have you. So what is the mindset when you're about to go to work? Um, Mine is to blow, to just demolish the crowd, just run them over. Just run them over with pure content, the quickness of the content. I like to compact my content that unnecessary words are not used. Get to the point, straight line A to B and on to it and just accumulate them with more content than any other comedian has and the quality of the content. Talk about, you talk about the economy of language, right? And Seinfeld talks about that a lot, about removing all the needless words. Exactly. He's right? a master at it. Yeah. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you make sure that you're only using exactly what you need? I, I haven't achieved that because I don't write like he does. He writes. So I got a friend like Don D.C. Curry. He might take a week or two weeks just to get that joke perfect. I don't have that system. I'm, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. 
you know, I'm manufactured right there, baby, the way it is. So if you come see me tonight, the show is not going to be the same tomorrow. Now, because I just see, I it's like it's what I tell people when they come to me. My my jokes is 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 a truth that gravitates to a lie. You know, oh, you didn't fight the dude got beat up. That's all everybody know. By the time they got the new truck, man, he got beat up. He stumped on the ground and he dragged them all the way back downstairs and did all that. I add everything to the truth. Now the truth, he did get his ass whooped, but all the extra stuff I put on to it, and that's what makes my jokes what it is. What do you do when? Uh, well, well, what do you do when 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 somebody leaps out of pocket when a heckler starts coming at you? I got a good reputation. They know who and who not to do it with, you know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, and plus, you know, my crowd, my constituents, my clientele, they come to see me, you know, right. if they wants to hear what I have to say. And you might have a people that want to be a part of the show, but that's very rarely. When, when was the last time or the last memorable time somebody tried to, you know, talk back too much and you had to put them in their place? Oh, white lady in Ohio. She was pointing at I mean, you know, she felt she had to white away. And um (laughs) 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 you know what I mean? And uh, I had to let her know. What'd you what'd you say? What did you say? Well, you know, um, I can't remember because none of mine's rehearsed, but to put it on to let her know, you know. She's entitled. To, I don't. I remember the last thing I told her. I don't know how much it costs for you to get to get in, but it don't cost you enough for you to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I told her that, and then I, I, I and then I, and I say I could see why your husband just walked went to the store one day and never came. Back. <laughs> 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 Kiss the kids on top of their heads. Why daddy crying when you going out? You just going to get some milk and everything. No, you ain't going to get no milk. They <laughs> <laughs> either leave you, leave now, or just straight up drown your ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, white men don't get no divorce. They kill their bitches. <laughs> <laughs> you trying to take half of my stuff, we going to fish it. <laughs> get your coat. <laughs> get in the boat. <laughs> oh, it's happened too many times. You know- Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Were, 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 when you were coming up, were you were you the funny one, or, or no. did you learn this? No, this was um, this was just the best decision that day. I have brothers that's funny than, funny than me. I just got into this, and then nothing else came along since. I knew I was going to be successful in something, but I never, I never had no inkling it'd be in the comedy entertainment. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. 
thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go into some of your past, but I want to hear your your all-time top five and some of the people who were your biggest comedy inspirations who you feel like kind of, you know, North Stars in terms of like, that's how you do it. Um, the GOAT is Eddie Murphy. Most talented man I have ever met in my life. I mean, just, just the most talented. Steve Harvey. People call him arrogant, but it, he taught he just self-love. If more people had self-love of themselves as Steve had for himself, we as a people would be better. Mm. So people don't understand. Steve Harvey, the way Steve is today, Steve was like this when he had no money. <laughs> Steve believed in Steve when nobody else believed in Steve. You know what I mean? Steve the self-confidence, and just could tell and rip a room. Chris Rock, because you got to understand, as certain comedians, we have two ways of making it as a black comedian. Some goes into the mainstream, of course, goes into the uh, regular comedy club, and some of us go through the chicken circuit. Mm. Now, you go through the mainstream, then, of course, you know, our white compadres know you. They want to sit there. 
Because you came through the ranks. You came through, you know, the main clubs, the, the funny ball and the improv, the catch the rising stars. And everything. Then you have the other club, the other black comedians like your Bernie Mats and your Robin Harris. You have to make so much rumbling in your own community that somebody that's already made it that they respect. I'd say, man, you need to go down here and see this person, you know? And mm-hmm. those are the two things off. And that's why I admire about Chris. He was able to do it both. And then, of course, my homeboy, Dave um, Dave Chappelle. Hold on for Who is it? I'm doing an interview, man. <laughs> oh, <God>, damn. <laughs> yeah. And uh, okay. Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock, Steve, um, Eddie, and Bernie. And said, and I love what DL is doing. You, right, he's the man who are the vows right now. You, you, and you, I, you left out one person. I think who, I, I mean, who is I, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest stand-up of all time. Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor. Yeah, I mean, prior to me, you know, it was a little before my time. I wasn't even in the in in our genre during that time. My father loved him in the whole time. So I never, ever, a lot of people in our career feel, oh, Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor. And I never had that connection in Pryor. I didn't even get into the game. I noticed about Pryor and the rest of it, but I didn't get really into the game till you know, we was living on the Eddie Murphy rule. You know what I mean? Did you not go back? And like study prior or not for you? I don't study any comedian. <laughs> no, I mean because, and I don't watch other comedians because I don't write. So everything comes off the top, and I have to keep my thought pattern pure. So if I listen and and see another comedian subconsciously, and I am, I could be sitting around, come up with something, and think I came up with it, and I really heard it from somebody else. Mm. So to keep myself from that ever happening and keep it pure. I always, I don't study them. I don't watch them. I watch some of my friends, but I only watch them a brief of it. And then I stop because I don't have no, no, no way to, to, to keep minds pure without it being um, contaminated with somebody else's work. And Robin Williams talked about the same thing that he didn't want to be listening too much because he goes into that, you know, that, that that stream of consciousness, he might start saying your joke because he didn't really realize. Well, I heard Robin Williams, God rest your soul, but I heard Robin used to steal everybody's shit. <laughs> I, heard, I heard Robin stole people's shit so motherfucking much that he used to be at the improv with his checkbook. Which one did I do with yours? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was yours. <laughs> Which one was that? I did, goddamn, I did with yours. So it's, I, you know, God rest his soul. But it's, I heard that, yeah, Robin used to rob you blind with no mask. <laughs> um, you came from D.C. Uh, yes, and, Southeast. And, and, and it was rough. How was it? Tell me about it. It was, you don't know it's rough until you go out and do a landscape for the rest of the country. Because everybody with you is in the same situation. Beautiful family, brothers and sisters. I'm closer with my brothers, my sisters. Um, I was raised by my aunt. Um, my mother had uh, four kids, and my grandmother told her that uh, she wasn't bringing a fifth one home. And of course, number five. Okay. So uh, she said, as soon as he able to walk, 
he he's walking his ass up out of here. So uh took my first step and I tried to show my grandmother I was walking. She said, he's walking there and you got to get him up out of here. My brother's like, I told you, do not take your first step around grandma. <laughs> you just had to show her you could walk. So, um, you know, as family do, um, she gave, my mother gave me to her sister to hold her child until she got on her feet. And, um, you know, my mother uh, came back to get me and, um, she was still had five kids and, you know, living in the projects. And I was living with my aunt and my uncle and they had two kids, but they was doing well. And when my mother came to get me, it was like, Are you ready? Come on, you can come back and move in here. And I looked around and seen the situation. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to stay where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> I'm going to stay. I got my own room. They four deep over there. <laughs> <laughs> so I was right. So we typed in a family. That's how we get down. So Southeast. So did you? So how long did you stay with your aunt? Until I joined the military. Okay. I never lived with my mother, my so, biological mother. Okay. So that's how you were able to, you know, stay on a straight and narrow. Well, that's of course you got to stay on them straight and narrow. That's why I never understand how adopted kids give people, you know. People problems. I, I had a straight up mother. I knew she had the ace in the hole. You know what I mean? You can't get nobody problems. Here, you know, I should have left you with your mama. You know what I mean? That's why I never understood. We can send you back. Send you back, or like you know, you adopt a kid and you giving your adopted parents problems. I was. A, I adopted. I said I knew I should have got that little Chinese kid. He probably over there working for Microsoft. <laughs> Apple TV or Apple and your ass over here getting locked up over Apple. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I just I just feel morally that I wasn't in a position to give my aunt and my uncle, which is my mother, father, problems. And then my humility that's in me was I was so thankful that they did do that for me. It would just be wrong to also give them problems also. So, uh, so you dip into the Air Force first of yes. all at eighteen. Soon as I graduate. Now, well, first of all, why the Air Force and not any of the? I mean, the Marines is very hard to get into, but why not the Army? No, nah, Marines easy. <laughs> okay, what? all of them easy stuff for the Air Force. What? Why, why is it? What? Oh, okay, I'm, all right. Now, now I see what I've done. Okay, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's just it's true. I'm not just saying. I'm not being biased because I was in it. And uh, the reason why I Air Force is the closest to the closest thing to a civilian job of the military service. That's one. Second is when I joined the military, of course, I wasn't into physical fitness at that time. I said, which one of these does the less? (laughs) So the Marines ran like 11 miles a day. Air Force, I mean, uh, Army was like five miles a day for a uh, basic train or something like that. The Navy had to swim so many miles. But the Air Force, you only had to run a mile and a half once a year. I said, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> it was a mile and a half. You only got to run a mile and a half in the military once a, once a year. That's their uh, PT. And you get like 30 minutes to run a mile and a half. What'd you do in the Air Force? I loaded nuclear weapons. 
you loaded nuclear weapons? Yes. Like on onto B- planes? Onto planes, on B-52s, um, F-15. I dropped one of them on the B-52. <laughs> You, you drop one of them and an explosion happened. No, it didn't explode. It just hit the uh, flight line and everybody ran because I, I didn't follow the normal procedures. But I was in a rush. It wasn't my fault because Luke, two live crew, was coming in town. I was distracted. But I had told my commander to not put me on there. Duke is coming in there with them hoes, and I am going. And I put in for leave and everything, and he going to put me in there to tell me change the munition for the uh, planes that's on alert. Because you have to change the munitions not to let the Russians or any of our enemy knows what the capabilities that each plane had, and it was time to rotate it. And I was like, man, you know I'm supposed to go see Luke. And they said, just do that, then you can leave. Of course, I ain't followed the procedures, put it up there, and the grease fittings wasn't in tight enough and I lowered the rack as soon as I lowered it you just heard <clears throat> okay, and I hit the ground boom everybody just started running I was like I don't know what you're running for this is a new this motherfucker gonna take out the <laughs> whole goddamn state it doesn't matter <laughs> you can't run can't run I just sat down smoked a cigarette waited on the police <laughs> better to be the first one killed and just be done with it but it was real good though because it was a great pickup line <clears throat> excuse me because i tell women all the time when i was in the military i said if i ever knock on your door and say make love to me tonight i mean your mr right is at the door because we just send them nukes in the air <laughs> 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 so you might as well get it in now So you made it up to sergeant? Yes. So that's pretty high. But I mean, that comes along with it. I never earned a stripe. You get that. (laughs) With just time and service. I was terrible, man. I was (laughs) terrible. You were terrible? Yeah, I was a terrible soldier. (laughs) Like we have we have um simulated wars and everything. I died the first day. I was Christopher (laughs) Abbott. Dude. My boy's like, <laughs> what you doing in the cool tank? I say, I died. I'm the first one to die. Because if you die, you can't participate in the war. They got to do a proper ca- uh, a calculation. How many people we'll have? And we have these kind of scrimmages against North Korea, these kind of scrimmages against uh, the Russians. And every day we kick off the war and simulate it. I die the first day. So I can go back to my room. People are like, wait, why you ain't out here doing your exercise? I died. <laughs> so everybody called, started calling me Christopher Addis because I died the first day of the war every time the simulated war every time it is I'm the first one uh, uh, <laughs> take this gas mask off of me take everything then they caught on somebody snitched on me so they say you ain't dying you doing this whole exercise so I'm like damn somebody snitched on me so the kids will not remember the Gulf War, but the first George Bush, right, said we're attacking Kuwait, right? Before, right, before the second, which is the reason why the second George Bush was like, we got to kill Saddam because you tried to kill my daddy in the Gulf War, right? True. And, and you were like, no, I'm not going to be part of that. What happened there? Well, what happened is uh, Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait and right. if he would have took over the oil there, he would have owned like mm, one fourth or two thirds. I don't know what the fraction of of all the oil in the world. Of course, as you see, 
our um, economy, but I was kind of like Mastodamus. Our economy is a, a consumer-based economy. So anyway, they was like, he's not going to be the oil, own all this oil. We're going to war about it. And you got to understand back then, that's when everybody was patriotic and everything. Boy, you had coalition of the whole world going against them. Uh, Whitney Houston was singing at the at the Super Bowl. It was patriotic. And you had one chip in the cookie. Talking about, I ain't going over there to fight. Two, I I mean, see, I ain't fighting over no oil. I ain't even got a car. You better send <laughs> Exxon over there or BP over there. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know when they get to D.C., then I'll help out. So they didn't like that that much. So they tried to send me over there, but I got out of it. So when you – I mean, were you – you? they said you are going to the front lines. Yeah, well – Then you yeah, said, we, no, I am not getting on the plane. Yeah, because you got to understand, we got we gave them a, a moratorium. We gave them an ultimatum. You better be out by January the 6th, January the 16th. And people don't know, you know, we just, as a military, this, this is, it's like a, it's a vessel, man. Before you do war, certain things have to move. You have to prepare for it. So we was about to deploy. And once we got the word that we was deploying, this would happen. That's when I stood up and said, man, I ain't no real soldier. I joined, I joined the military to get out of my mama's house. I could have stayed at home to get shot at. <laughs> 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 Stop the cop, doughboy! boy. Drop me back off at the recruiter. I mean, I mean, you make you make a you make a joke out of it, but I'm sure it was a very serious, dramatic situation when you're telling your, I guess, your commanding officer. And by the time you're a sergeant, you're pretty high up there, and you're telling your commanding officer, like, "No, I'm not going." And that's a that is hugely different than everyone around you. And as you pointed out, the the that war was not the most unpopular war, as opposed to the Iraq war, which was very unpopular. So right. you were really going against the grain saying, no, no, I'm not going to no, the Gulf yes. War. Yes, the, the so, first So, I mean, was it, was it hard? Was it dramatic to be like, no, I'm not going? No, because I knew what I said didn't matter until what I had to do, because they paid me no attention, I'm not going. But ultimately, they was trying to get me to go. And it was a meeting of the minds who was going to win. Of course, I won. Because <laughs> I broke I mean, my wrist. I mean, they can't. <laughs> you broke your wrist? Yeah. Oh, On yeah, purpose? Is, huh? On purpose? Hell yeah. Because you, you can't go anything if you have a, uh, if you have a physical right. disability. Yeah. Right. They put you on a waiver. Right. And... Um, they was really trying to send me to make me an example. So I was uh, at a club, and um, God is always on my side. A young lady who worked at uh, equivalent to everybody else customer service, but we call it SIBO, said, hey, we just typed up your orders. And tomorrow when you come to work, they are going to ship you all the way out to Saudi Arabia. That's where the base that we was going to be fighting at tomorrow. So I got together with my friends and the mother of my child at that particular time. They said they're trying to send me over there to get me killed. You got to understand, at that particular time, we thought he had weapons of mass destruction. Right. We thought he also had chemical war, I mean, chemical weapons. And that's why when I tell people about the coronas, they say we have already been trained with that. We were trained that this could be a possibility other than coronas. I mean, 
I mean, coronavirus on it. So I was like, these are trying to get me. So what I did, I uh, got all my people together and said, we're going to sit there. I said, the only way I can get out here if I had a physical ailment that keeps me from being deployed. So everybody knew that. So one of my boys like, let's shoot you in the ankle. I said, nigga, you're just trying to fuck me up. And then uh, we all got together. So we just thought about breaking my ankle. I mean, break my wrist. So we got this axe handle. I got it now. I just got it back from my baby's mother. And um, one of my boys, his name was Griff, held my um, arm out. My other boy, Dave, looked over there. And Dave hit it with the axe handle. Pow! I fell to the ground. Girl was crying. So, oh, baby. Oh, I said, fuck all that. Bitch, get the car. Take me to the hospital. <laughs> that was your job. <laughs> and so he drove me to the hospital. I got a cast on it. So the next morning, um, had my back turned. My so my sergeant came, he tapped me on the shoulder, said, Sergeant Stroman, get ready to deploy. And I turned around with a cast on. And he saw me, I smiled. He said, you did that on purpose. You sitting there, I'm a court martial. I said, sir, I, I, with all due respect, I'm offended that you would think that I would inflict any pain on myself and the United States government property. That is that is outlandish, and I want you to choke. I mean, what did I say? I need you to take back that statement immediately. So he took me up to, to the first, I mean, he took me up to the... Uh, to the commander, the general, and say, he did this on purpose. I said, no, I didn't, sir. I failed in the bathtub taking a shower. So they deployed. I stayed and worked in the snake in the snack bar until the war was over. The, the, the honesty or dishonesty aside, I'm still stuck at the side of you purposefully broke your wrist. Like that, like I was like, <laughs> what? Like, that's great. I mean, wow. You ain't never seen people in Vietnam shoot themselves so they can get on the back. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't never seen a dude. I, I forgot one movie, a dude stabbed himself in the thigh so he can go back yeah. home. See, yeah. I don't have a problem with defending this country, but I'm not going to defend this country based on your perception of the threat. Right. I mean, you, you articulated the reason why you're taking this great country to war because Saddam Hussein invaded a country, not because they're sovereign, not because he was in prison. He took it over for the oil, which in Texas, I don't have a car. So that's not my fight. I'm on the bus. <laughs> the fuck I'm fighting for? In, you better in, send BP and Exxon over there. So in, I, I, I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but in, 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 with, the, with the benefit of hindsight, because the way you explain the conflict makes me seem like you'd be like, well, I understand why we had to stop him there. He did not have WMD, so we didn't need to go into Iraq, but we all do need oil and gas to get around. So do you still think that uh, younger you was right to say, no, I'm not going to that? Of course, because it was all about commerce. Regardless if he owned it all, he had to sell it. I mean, I wasn't benefiting nor hindered by the, the price of gas or oil. So you be comfortable with him, with Saddam Hussein having controlled, uh, you know, a large quantity of the of the of the gas of the oil in the world? No, because I don't believe just by him taking um, Kuwait's oil that he will own that much. Saudi Arabia still had theirs; other people have theirs, 
and that is not for me, my humble opinion. My life is not worth sacrificing or being in jeopardy in exchange to stop somebody for having crude oil. I mean, the, 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 the military's multi-year obsession with Saddam Hussein, in retrospect, is like, damn, why did we... Why were we trying to kill this man so long? I mean, this this had such a huge impact on modern American history. Yeah, but if but if you really pull it down, it, it didn't have nothing to do with him. It had to do with their economical stance and their standard of living. For them, they didn't want the oil to be adjusted on a higher level because it would affect them. It had nothing to do with us. If it wasn't no oil in the Middle East, they wouldn't give a damn what's going on over there. Mm-hmm. It's just that they That's had true. that treasure over there. So That's you were not going to fool me in the game and all of a sudden you coming over here to save the world and it was wrong. If you was, if you was truly worried about injustice, you could have just looked in your backyard at me. You didn't have to go all the way over to the Middle East to be, you know, to be this savior. So I wasn't falling for it. And so, so then you didn't have a car. No. Now, now what are you pushing? Well, some German, German. Yeah. <laughs> I got a, got a, got a BMW Maybach, stankin' Lankin, couple Mercedes. Oh, see, he's living large. So, so what has money afforded you that's really nice? Independence. Mm-hmm. That's all the reason I ever, I, that's the only thing, that's the only reason I um, value money for my independence, allowed me to not to depend on nobody but myself, allowed me to live a standard of living, a standard of living that despite if anybody break their moral promises to me, um, I'll be all right with my standard of living. A lot of people, I've seen so many people are in relationships that they're not in love with them, but they just can't afford to leave them because of their standard of living. I said it, I wrote a joke about that. I say, I see why rich people don't stay married because it's hard to put on somebody's shit when you don't need their half on the rent. <laughs> see, when you're rich, you just come home and say, what I owe you? Because we... You ain't, we don't, we, it's not working. You know what I mean? So the independence on it is, is, is really the most beautiful thing about having money. Does it give you the freedom within your career to say no to things? Is that part of it? No, not, well, it does now, but I had, I had kids. So my selective, my obligations is I have three kids and how old? Uh, 35, 24, and today is my son's birthday, 18. So I'm oh, out wow. of the game. Oh, wow. Yes, Happy, I'm birthday. Out the game. Happy birthday. So when, yes, thank you for him. And so it's very expensive taking care of four households because you have to make sure <laughs> each one of them have the same standard of living as you. So until they get 18 years old, you know, that's what it is. So now that they're 18 and you no longer have to take care and keeping those standard of living for those three different individuals, now all those resources, you can keep them for yourself. So now 
you can be more selective of saying, nah, I ain't doing that. Yeah, I'll do that. But before then, you had to. Let me let me ask you about your career path, because I'm sure that you've been very strategic and thoughtful about what you wanted to do. And you talk about having independence that you can say yes and no, and it's been extremely successful for you, and you built this big uh, uh, life for yourself and your family. It seems to me the trajectory for a lot of comedians is, you know, like you make it at the stand-up level, then you get to TV, you get your own TV show, and then you get to a movie. And I don't think you've done that. I knew you, you've done some movies, you've done mm-hmm. some TV, but you haven't like tried to become, or have you tried to become a movie star uh, or a fixture within movies or get a big TV show that's built around you and your story, your comedy? Um, what's, what's up with that? Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I'm not a sack chaser. I elaborate what I mean. TV, you know, I did TV and movies, but I, I didn't enjoy it because it takes so much time—18, 19 hours—and my plus. Like I said before, I make enough money for me. It's these goddamn kids that keep me working. <laughs> so you know i and then you know a lot of people in my career my my peers be in movies and tv and don't enjoy it but they do it so they can get the accolades that comes along with it the women and be able to be known i'm not a sack chaser i'm not i can't give you 18 hours and chase something just for the residual fact of it to get these accolades of what I previously said. Now that I'm free, I don't have any kids, I'm morally to fulfill my obligation to my kids. I tell them when they get 18, our relationship changes. And they say, what you mean? I said, well, we move our relationship from the provider to the advisor. So when you come to me now, you're like, daddy, what you think? I said, I don't know, but this is what I would do if I was you. But you're grown now. I don't close up. Maybe future moments trying to have a relationship here. Close up. So it's the truth, man. So now that I'm into me, I'm gonna be doing more TV, more movies, and I'm I'm just gonna be the best entertainer. And I want to do movies and TV, so I can see myself being on the set for twelve hours and not saying, "Hey, man, what time is the time to wrap?" and enjoying it. So. I wasn't just going to be doing it just to be doing it, just to get, the, you know, the, to be able to get in the club and don't be on no wait list or be at uh, certain parties, the necessary things you need uh, in your um, resume so you can get to some of these aid parties and things like that. And get what, these is, kind of accolades. what is the responsibility that you feel to your ancestors and your predecessors um, that and where does that show up in your work? Um, I don't really look at the responsibility to my ancestors now because, personally speaking, I feel right now our existence of who we are is at stake now. I, you know, I. I, I worry about the Holocaust that we're going through now. So I really, I have more of a more responsibility to the brothers and sisters that's here now that who can make a change 
into the ones that's under this now to make them stronger, to be a stronger for the chain. I, I don't, I can't do nothing for my ancestors. They're gone. They're, they're gone. That's just my mentality. I can learn from the lessons that they provided for and try to not to go through the pitfalls they asked, but do I owe any, my more, my, my responsibility for me is to my brothers and my sisters that's here right now, how we deal with us to make it better in this place and the people that, and our kids that's coming behind us. Um, <clears throat> I ask everybody this, that, I find that in, in everybody's emotional well at the bottom, you're either scared, angry, or sad. What about you? Scared, angry, or sad. I'm a Gemini. I'm on three of them. <laughs> and put insecure with it. <laughs> you know? Because you insecure when you never had your own and you, you know, you know, your mother give you up and then you living with your cousin. They say go live with your mother and father. So you always had to understand that you had to be self-sufficient for yourself. You could be living in a house, but it ain't your home, but you're grateful that you are in a house, even if it ain't your home. So when you put that all together, you know, you understand it's like a spades hand, man. It's the cars that you build. You got to get at least four. See, that's when I was a kid. I said, I'm going to get me at least four books. <laughs> you know what I mean? The homeless dude is motherfucker that can't go forward. So I'm going to miss before. So, my mentality is always, I didn't have all of those angry, sad, less angry, because I knew I was going to be something. I just didn't know what it was going to be. Do you, God, do you look at it like you have, I mean, even now, do you look at it like you have two moms? Do you have an equal relationship with both of them? Well, I did at one time. My mother, my biological mother had guilt, of course, what any parent would be. Um, that um, unfortunately that she didn't get to raise this child. And then you put me being in the military and then you put this earthquake movies and tea. It's just heightened the guilt, you know? And fortunately before she passed, I was able to relieve her of it and said, there is no guilt. You could, and I, as I told her and I shared with you, your decision, you know, was the right decision based upon look at the results. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I personally, and I had to tell her, I say I have more respect for you that what you did than a parent that knew you couldn't take care of this child and you kept them anyway and you wasn't able to give them what they needed. That's more of a parent showing love that you yeah. would give your child to someone that can do something for them that you can't do or you're willing not to do. Yeah, And then a person with knowing that you have those two characteristics, but yet you have them in there and leave them to fend for themselves and the rest of them that way. So I articulated to that and, you know, I had to tell her that, you know, you cannot be mad at me or your sister because you don't, and on me, maternal, I mean, have no, me to have no maternal instincts with you because when I was four and had a cold, she was the one. When I failed, she was the one. So I'll 
relationship is based upon what she did for me, but it was no shun to you. And you can't hold it against me that me and you don't share that. But because we don't share that, I don't I don't have no dispersion comments towards you or, yeah. or no negativity towards you. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. It's 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 a big um, gesture of love and understanding for a mom to let her child go. Yes. Understanding you can do better for him than I can, but so many moms, and I fully understand it, would never let their child go. We gonna, you know, we gonna make a way out of this somehow, some way, and respect to all those moms. But a mom who made a decision of like, I know you could do better for him. So go ahead, you know, and, and that's that. I mean, that's a selfless love that is that is kind of an amazing, amazing decision. Well, I think it should be done more. You see it. You, if, if some of these we wouldn't be having some of these problems now, if some of these mothers was to look and say, I'm not equipped. I, I don't have the I don't, I'm not willing to give the necessary time and sacrifice to get his child what they need instead of saying that and putting them in a loving family for it to happen, a relative or her to have it. We wouldn't be having so many of these problems that we have now in our own community, in my humble opinion. So uh, I ask everybody, what is your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other people that has allowed you to have the success that you've had? Oh, my logic. My point of view, my logic, how I can compartmentalize a situation in a small area and see it better than anybody else in the world and able to articulate it with very few words in a comical sense. You know what I mean? And it curves power. Like one of my best jokes, like back when um, the OJ trial and it was still one of my favorite. And everybody was looking at it, it was different. But no one said, how did OJ kill two people with one knife? 
what was the other one doing when he stabbed the first one? <laughs> and and then I bring it back to us. He could only do that to white people because you can't kill two black people for one night. <laughs> if it was the man first, <laughs> if he would have stole, if he would have killed the woman first, told you, OJ, that motherfucking woman wasn't no good. I was just coming over here and slapping off, man. We should have been dead there. And if he would have killed the man first, and standing a woman, she like, OJ, that's you in them, in them bushes. I ain't even know that was you. Come on in here. <laughs> Let me cook you something to eat. You still like cheese like in your eggs? Let's get back together. There is no way to kill two black people with one night. See, I was see, I was I was I was on that mindset the other night. I was at one of the protests and I saw some other people across the street running. And I was like, I don't see what they're running from, but I need to go. Right. <laughs> I need to figure out what they're running from to decide I need to run. They're running, so that means I need to keep it moving. <laughs> True that. And we don't need, we see one person run, and we'll keep running until everybody stops, and everybody has the same crap. Who are we running for? What We're was Run first, ask later. We never have we huddle at the bench. Nobody know why we ran. Then one person, he had a gun. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's you can do without a bit to be out of breath. <laughs> he had a gun. Um, so uh this has been uh, uh uh fantastic. I really appreciate you and your time and everything's been awesome. Um, my man Chris Colbert uh, says, "What's up?" Sends his Tell love. I said, "What's happening?" No doubt, no doubt. Um, Did you read all these books you got up here, brother? <laughs> I see you got. I'm over here with the Jay Z book. I see one. I got about two of them, and I'm trying to read more. And just looking at you with all of these books, brother, you make me feel ignorant illiterate. <laughs> I'm looking at all of these things. You got the Miles Davis over there. You yep. got the Queen. Right, Queen. You got the um, Jay-Z book, The Code over there. I'm seeing you with the Richard Prime right there. Yep. the Muhammad Ali in the corner. <laughs> I read a bunch of them, you know what I mean? Uh, not all, definitely not all of them. Definitely not all of them. Okay. There's definitely books that are there for the future. Um, okay. But, you know, you know. So let me tell, let me ask you this then. Yeah. How did you get into reading that way? Because every time, I mean, that's one of my, not one of my strengths that I'm getting into now. And I swear, it's it's a beautiful thing now that I'm in it. Yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, a different it's, way. It's just in me, you know? I just always want to have a book that I'm having a relationship with. It's like you're having a friendship with that book. So you guys are interacting and you're going back and forth. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of books that I've read halfway through that I keep meaning to get back into and finish, you know, so, right. you know, I might be going through three or four at the same time. You know, I got to finish the warmth of other sons. I got to finish black Swan. I got to finish sapiens. So, you know, there's, you know, but then there's stuff like the new Jim Crow that just grabs you by the neck. And I just, I couldn't put it down. Um, the Ta-Nehisi Coates book that everyone freaked out about, I couldn't put that down. Um, there's definitely books that I read, I mean, decoded, you know, I mean, like that Dream Hamden is my girl from like way back. So, I mean, like I had to read that and see what she did and how she approached that. Um, but, you know, you know, I, I think I want to try to attack 
the warmth of other suns and get that done and make that be like one thing I can look back on quarantine and like, okay, I got, I finally got that done in quarantine. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of times, you know, when I'm home, I got two little kids. I don't get a ton of reading done unless I travel somewhere, get on the plane with a book. I'm like, yo, this is great. Fly to LA with a book. Like this is great. You know, like, so I could really knock off a bunch of, uh, bunch of chapters that you know but i mean like you know just just love being in conversation with an author who's like you know breaking it down and changing your mind and like really you know peeping game and explaining to you the way the world is and like that's that shit okay so will you do most of your reading when you're on the plane mostly you was with it most places that you do you separate yourself from your family so you can get it do you put yourself in like a, a a reading area? Do you wait? How do you block out the world and just have this romance or this relationship with the author? Where's the first place do you cultivate this relationship with it? I, I mean, you know, I can. I mean, I can sit here on this couch and and dig into a book. Um, you know, uh, it's easier when the kids and my wife are asleep and the house is quiet. You know, um, definitely if I'm on a plane, you know, or in a hotel, you got a couple hours to kill before, you know, I go do a speech or interview somebody or whatever. And like, you know, digging into this book. I mean, there's just Stephen King talked about just always have a book at your side. Just even if you can only read a page or two in this moment um, and then put it away. And so, I mean, you know, if I'm going somewhere there's always a book in my bag or on my Kindle that I'm like, you know, if, you know, if I get five, 10, 30 minutes, I can dip into this. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll feel guilty if I dig too heavy into like a game, you know, when I'm like, you could be, you could be knocking off that book, you know, <laughs> could be knocking down Believe that book. Me. Yes. I watch so much MSNBC, CNN and that same thing. Come on, man. You should Okay, just read about what you want to see then, sir. You know what I mean? Just read about it. And before you do let me go, let me ask you something. Did you yeah. know, when did you know that um, your uh, interview with R. Kelly was going to be so iconic? When well, uh, did you know it's a great he question. said that to you? It's a great question. You because, know what I mean? Because I'll, t- I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the whole story of it. Because I asked him... Do you like underage girls, right? And his crisis manager came running in and said, "No, no, 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 no! You cannot ask him that." And he said, "Wait a minute, I want to ask answer this question." Mm-hmm. So then the guy went and sat down. So the second time I said, "Do you like teenage girls?" And he gave the answer we all saw. But I assumed that they would cut it out because the crisis manager had already flagged that moment. I assumed that he would see that R. Kelly had stepped all over himself and he would say, y'all got to cut that out. So when we finished, there was no like, all right, whatever, like normally. Like you normally sit with somebody for an hour and you have a bond and you might hug or dap or something. Like, you know, I was like, can you tell your fans this will never happen again? And he was like, oh, this interview will never happen again. And he kind of got up and walked off and I kind of went the other way. I went in the bathroom. I was very upset with myself. I'm like, he was sitting right there. You know, you didn't really get it. 
you didn't really get him to admit you didn't really advance the story you allowed him to get away again like god damn like how and when it aired and i was like oh shit she left that in oh wow and i'm telling you it was like the the next day i could not walk down the street because like everybody mm. i remember walking down broadway in manhattan in Soho, and everyone was like, R. Kelly, R. Kelly, when you said your face, people kept saying, your face in the R. Kelly. People kept saying that. I was like, yo, R. Kelly's going to be on my fucking tombstone when I die. <laughs> your face in the R. Because part of it was, too, was like, I didn't want to let him and his crisis manager know that he had played himself. So I tried to cover my right. face because I didn't want to be like, <gasps> and then that they know. like Dixon oh. moment. <laughs> I, I I I I don't think I covered my face as much as I wanted to, like kind of let the audience know, like yo, he played himself, but they didn't realize, like yo, we got to snip that moment out. Um, so yeah, just walking down the street, I mean, just hearing it over and over and over, like it was like, okay, this is this is a big cultural moment that people were like, yo, I think we just learned something about dude. And let me ask you, and I'm interviewing you now. Are yeah. you surprised from your interview to where he at today that it took that long? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, there's something about the love that you can inspire when you're a great artist or a great ball player that you can make people forget. Right. Mm. You know, okay. look at look at me over here. I can shoot this rock like crazy. I can make you dance like crazy. Look over here. And people got like hypnotized into that shit and like, you know, went off with that shit. And like, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's it's a little surprising. But I think, you know, I think uh, uh, it, it 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 definitely it definitely was surprising that it took a long time for shit to come around. I mean, I remember being on Twitter, might have been ten years ago, and had just started talking about it, and all these girls started coming out of the woodwork, tweeting at me like, "Yo, I was fourteen in Chicago, ten years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, twelve years ago," and he knew the recess times for all the nice schools, like the Catholic and the private schools, Ooh. and would show up at recess time. And it was clearly like, you know, we're gonna go to recess here, and then here, and then here. And like, you know, saying hi, who's really interested, who's really willing to like get in the car. And you know, certain girls could, you know, have the whole experience if they wanted to. Right. You know, right. I, that was that was crazy. A bunch of girls raised their hand, like, "Yo, I saw other people move through this experience." I was like, "Wow." I know you ain't a doctor, though, but if you had to give a diagnosis of the, the psyche of him, what would you call him? What would you? Well, what would what, what would you? What? Because I'm not a, it, I don't want to go too far because I'm not a doctor, but you know, the brother cannot read. Right, so there's a there's a lot there's a clear uh, bifurcation of his mind. He is okay. a brilliant songwriter, performer, you know, 
creator and all of that, but he can't read a book. So there's a part of him that is hyper-developed and a part of him that is childlike. Okay. And that's not to excuse the behavior uh, or any of that, but just to try to try to figure like, why are you acting like this? Because I mean, you know, it's 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 a lot. It's a lot. Mm. It's a lot. He's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. He's a lot. Okay. I always wanted to ask you that, man. No doubt. No I doubt. Did. No doubt. Anything else? No, man. Now that you got your interviewer on, because I know you know how to show. <laughs> you know how to do it. You know how to come with your, you know, with your, you know. So, no, you know. I just wanted to know, man. I, I mean, I respect that. Was I was I forgot. I used that in one of my jokes because I, you know, once long time. The R. Kelly bit. Yeah. What did you say? Um, when you said to, have you ever messed with underage girl? Define underage. If you had to help him with her homework, nigga. <laughs> if she had lights underneath her tennis shoes and rolled with two, <laughs> come on, Ira. They're making it hard to stop. You make it very hard. Because I can't recite my shit. It's like a preacher doing a right. sermon. It right. kind of like, yeah, you're making me hard to stop. <laughs> you're making it hard for me to step in the name of love, brother. <laughs> it's crazy because... I, I didn't hear that joke, but I heard Aziz Ansari did a whole joke about it. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel did a whole joke about it. I think when, I think early days of his late night show. So it was crazy to see at least the comics like take it and try to make something like some, a meal out of it. Like that's when you really are at a different level of, of like a pop cultural moment. Yeah. I mean, you had your own. Um... Well, I'm gonna menace the society. Hey, but my man, you know you don't fuck up, right? You don't fuck up, right? Oh my up. god! And what and what Kenya Barris did with that in Black AF? Yeah, you, you know you don't fucked up, right? You know you don't fucked up, right? <laughs> and now I say I say to my son like, Yo, how how many days has it been since you showered? All right, you can either get in the shower or we can call a dog groomer. What's up? <laughs> he knows yeah. I'm fucking with him. <laughs> yeah, them kids don't want to take no shower. Oh, my God. They don't. Oh, my God. All right, my brother. Well, hey, man, it's yeah, a pleasure man. meeting you, man. Yeah, man, you too, man. It's been an honor talking to you, man. Man, the honor's all mine, brother. And uh, I'm going to read more now, even more now. You have inspired me. If there's nothing but a chapter and fall asleep, because I fall asleep every time I start. Well, you, you know, you get you try to um, try to be physically sitting up. Okay. I think sometimes when we read, we relax, and you may lean into the couch or what have you, and that will promote you going to sleep. And I have to remind myself, like you know, like sit up so that you don't have that like uh, fall asleep type shit. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's, that's a good thing. I'm going to try that. Make sure I'll be in a place that has my posture right. Yeah. yeah keep you <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, not a couch that's going to make me relax. Thanks so much to Earthquake for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, and Gerville Calais. 
Torre show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday and next Friday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. (laughs) 